Production made possible in part by MedPlus Advantage. You're listening to Radio Rounds, where today's stories are told by tomorrow's doctors. Coming up on today's show, you'll hear my conversation with Dr. Jason Persoff, an assistant professor of internal medicine at the University of Colorado. But that is certainly not all he does. In May of 2011, his love of storm chasing, that's right, storm chasing, brought him to the town of Joplin, Missouri. On a fateful night, it would turn out, when a powerful and devastating tornado, the costliest in U.S. history, struck that town right over two busy hospitals. Suddenly we had an even more uh, harrowing experience, which was there were no emergency vehicles coming onto the highway nowhere. Uh, Finally, a police officer did show up, and when he did, he asked, you know, I said, I'm a physician and, you know, I'm happy to assist at the command center. He said, well, I hope you're not from St. John's. That hospital's been destroyed. And I'll never forget when he said the hospital had been destroyed because, you know, I've worked in hospitals my entire medical career, and the idea of a hospital acutely, suddenly being destroyed was unfathomable. And I remember the hair stood up all over me. Welcome to Radio Rounds, everyone. I'm your host, Avash Kalra. Now, as many of you know, I'm currently a resident physician at the University of Colorado in Denver. And as a resident, I spend a fair amount of time, of course, working in the hospital at night. Now, our guest today is no stranger to the nighttime. Dr. Jason Persoff, one of our esteemed physicians and teachers at our hospital, works exclusively at night as a nighttime hospitalist. That's his quote-unquote day job. But every year, around May, he takes time away from the hospital to chase storms through the Great Plains, his travels taking him certainly throughout this state of Colorado, but also Kansas, Oklahoma, Nebraska, Iowa, Missouri, and so on. He takes some truly stunning photographs of the storms, the tornadoes that he sees, and you can check those out at stormdoctor.com. But in our conversation today, we focus on the night in May 2011, when the two parts of that persona storm doctor, came together in an unpredictable way when he came across two hospitals in Joplin that had just been close to decimated by a tornado. Now, that tornado was an EF5 tornado, EF5 meaning that winds reach over 200 miles per hour, and it's the most severe rating for tornadoes. It struck Joplin, Missouri late on Sunday, May 22, 2011. Now, as we hear Dr. Persoff's story and the incredible, heroic efforts of all the responders on that day, we remember as well that the tornado killed 158 people. It injured over 1,100 others, and when the dust settled, that tornado in Joplin was the deadliest tornado in the United States since 1947. Simply put, Dr. Persoff's story is captivating, and it takes us right into the eye of that storm. All right, well, Dr. Persoff, welcome to the show. We're really really glad to have you, obviously, here live at the University of Colorado. A snowstorm is coming this evening. First of all, I want to start off by asking you uh, to introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about what you do in your quote-unquote day job. (laughs) Yeah, that's funny. My name is Jason Persoff. I'm an assistant professor of internal medicine here at the University of Colorado. I'm a hospitalist full-time, but specifically I'm a nocturnist full-time. So my day job is actually a night job. 
which is really wonderful because I get to spend time with the residents teaching and also spend more time with my patients. So that's what I've sort of set out as my career path. And are you from Denver originally? I was born and raised in Aurora, so not far from here, um, and lived my entire life in Colorado going to college and then medical school here before moving to Jacksonville, Florida to do my residency and chief residency at Mayo Clinic. Worked there for 10 years and decided that the bugs and the humidity had gotten the best of me and I wanted to come back to the great state of Colorado. Now, a lot of people who aren't from Colorado think that it's cold here all the time and that it's typically not sunny and 60 (laughs) degrees like we typically get. Now, weather, of course, is an interesting uh, topic for you. Tell me a little bit about how you got into uh, what we're going to talk mostly about today, which is this uh, issue of storm chasing. When I was a kid, I used to love severe weather days. First of all, it was always really cool because the the teachers would huddle us up into the inside portion of classrooms whenever there was severe weather. And so there was the excitement of getting to break from class and then all of that. And back in um, my elementary school days, they used to show these films mm-hmm. of severe weather and, and ways to protect yourself against tornadoes. My friends and I got very excited about all that. Aurora, Colorado is actually right along the edge of a natural geographic feature. It's called the DCVZ. And that national or natural geographic feature produces low-end tornadoes fairly consistently, particularly in June and July. And so when I was starting to grow up and able to be more mobile in my car, it was very easy to catch tornadoes. Um, I'd head out to the DCVZ and boom, we'd be good to go. The reality of it is that, in fact, they built the Denver airport right in the middle of the DCVZ. So if you're ever flying into DIA, you can tornado chase from your window. As I got older, I really wanted to understand more about severe weather, and I was fortunate enough to have somebody tell me I was a complete calamity on wheels. And he managed to convince me that I needed to learn more about meteorology and how to approach storm chasing. So around 1991, 92, 93, I started to really get into uh, the process of learning about meteorology, self-taught, and also connecting with other chasers to learn what it was like about chasing weather. So every single spring and the last two weeks of May or the first week of June, I'll go ahead and head out to the Front Range as well as head over to uh, anywhere from Canada all the way down to Mexico and as far east as Missouri to try and um, hunt down severe weather. So walk us through how this works. So it's late May, it's early June. You typically work here as a physician at the University of Colorado, and a storm is on the way. Tell me what you do. So about usually around three to five days in advance, um, the models will start to demonstrate the setup, the synoptic recipe, if you will, for severe weather. So. My friends and I will often begin a bunch of chatter and begin actually forecasting. Most people don't realize that storm chasing is actually a phenomenon of of what we call clear sky chasing. So we're actually trying to figure out where the tornadoes are going to form long before there's any storms. Um, And around 24 hours in advance, we've usually narrowed our forecast down to about 150 square miles, uh, and we'll actually drive to get into that location or near that location. In the morning, we'll begin some very heavy-duty forecasting based on real-time observation and then continue to pick a target. Now, it's hard for people to understand the scale of what we're talking about here. We're talking about whenever there's a tornado watch box issued, you're usually talking about one to two, sometimes up to three different states are involved in that. 
and we're trying to find the needle in the haystack before the severe weather has even occurred. And so over the years, there's different tricks to forecasting and, and coming up with that decision. But we make that decision, and then we commit. Usually a bunch of storms will form at one time, and if you've ever been in like King Supers or any other grocery store, and you're trying to figure out which line is the fastest, you are now facing what it's like as a storm chaser looking at several different storms in your target area. Invariably, most of the time I'm going to pick the slowest line. And <laughs> so every now and again I nail it, and that's when I can see the severe weather. I don't chase to see destruction. Uh, these storms are magnificent on their own right, and I'm always interested in sharing what I've experienced through um, images and video that capture the, the grandeur of these storms. We live in an amazing country. I'm sure every country is just as amazing as the U.S. I'm just able to drive around ours freely. And the stormscapes and the terrain that we chase over is some of the most stunning that I can even imagine describing to you. They may look pretty plain if you're just taking pictures of it in clear sky, but sure. boy, frame it with the storm and lightning, mm, it's beautiful. And we might as well men mention this now for our viewers listening. Where can they find some of the photos that you've taken? Stormdoctor.com, which is S-T-O-R-M-D-O-C-T-O-R.com. So, so you're the storm doctor, and uh, a few years ago, those two words came together very closely for you. Um, your day job or your night job, as you told us about earlier, and then this um, storm chasing that you do as well. Walk us through uh, what happened in Kansas a few years ago. Sure. So it was May 22, 2011. Uh, I chase, incidentally, with two other physicians. One other hospitalist, Robert Baylog, who's in Oklahoma, and an allergist, who I tease is not actually a physician, uh, Bill Hark, who's a good friend. And we chase together usually most years. Uh, Bill was off in Oklahoma chasing other storms. My partner, Robert Baylog, and I were in, in Wichita. And the day uh, we'd forecast very confidently that there was going to be intense, severe weather, we targeted an area in southeast Kansas called Coffeeville and actually went to go chase our storms in that location that day. And as the storms formed, they were very rapidly severe, but they were a mess. It was just a jumble of dyskinetic atmospheric violence. Nothing that's really photogenic, nothing that looks particularly awesome. Early on in the storm, I had told my partner, this storm will do amazing things. But about an hour and a half into chasing that storm, I said, this storm is dead. Let's just head over to Joplin and call it a night. Uh, the storm was heading to Joplin, so we figured we'd follow the storm on the way there. We joined up with some of my friends who run a chase tour company, uh, Cloud9 Tours. And as we entered into Missouri, the radar rapidly changed. The storm, which had been sort of this mess, suddenly blossomed into an absolute, unparalleled, in my experience, storm. On radar, the storm went from being disorganized to like a mini land hurricane. Very well-pronounced eye, which we call a hook echo, and it was bearing down on the city of Joplin. It's hard to communicate the rapidity with which this occurred. We were talking about a blob of storms at around 5 o'clock, and then suddenly by 5.15, the storm had organized into a violently rotating storm which we've seen, but not usually over that time course. Within the next few minutes, the storm really put its, really got organized and put down its first tendrils of a tornado. Within about 45 seconds from the time it touched down, it became 
a three-quarter mile wide tornado. So it went from just about 10 yards across uh, to three-quarters of a mile. It expanded wider, faster than it was moving. And it was exceptionally powerful from the get-go. My partners and I all made the decision that we were going to hang back because the tornado looked extremely violent. Um, and we were going to follow it and then see if we can get into another position after it had passed us uh, to get some photography. But it was clear that this was actually bearing down directly on the city of Joplin. Most people don't realize that radar can only see uh, what we call line of sight. And since the world is a sphere, the further you are from a radar station, the higher up in the clouds you're looking. And so the further out a storm is from the radar, you're actually not able to see the bottom portion of the storm. The reason this is significant is as the tornado got into Joplin, it started to show what's called a debris signature or a debris ball. The debris ball is actual debris being hefted up into the air by the tornado. And in order for it to be registered, it has to reach pretty high up into the air because of that phenomenon of line of sight. And we saw an intense debris ball, probably about a mile wide, um, which reflected debris, big debris, uh, roughly 1,000 to 2,000 feet in the air. So very intense. So we knew that the tornado was causing damage. Um, as we continued on, uh, traffic heading westbound disappeared, and very shortly we were suddenly confronted with tons of vehicles which had been tossed, not by the tornado, which is what we originally thought, but in fact by um, the straight-line winds feeding into the tornado, um, which were traveling in at around 100 to 150 miles per hour. The actual wind speeds in Joplin exceeded 220 miles per hour. Uh, and so immediately we went into first response mode. We got out. I started to set up a triage area on the highway, and we started trying to account for the different individuals who were injured on the highway. It took about five minutes. There were only a few people really injured then um, when suddenly we had a... Uh, suddenly we had an even more uh, harrowing experience, which was there were no emergency vehicles coming onto the highway nowhere. Uh, finally, a police officer did show up, and when he did, he asked, you know, I said, I'm a physician, and, you know, I'm happy to assist at the command center. And he said, well, I hope you're not from St. John's. The, that hospital's been destroyed. And I'll never forget when he said the hospital had been destroyed because, you know, I've worked in hospitals my entire medical career, and the idea of a hospital acutely suddenly being destroyed was unfathomable. And I remember the hair stood up all over me, and I was in shock. So he said the only other hospital that was available was Freeman Health System. And suddenly, here we are, we're in, still in the tornado is only maybe a half mile away. I mean, it's still roaring. The sound of it is not like a freight train. The sound was this, it's hard to describe, this bass sound that just you could feel in every bone in your body. And it was as if the earth itself were vibrating. And it was that intense, deep sound. You can sometimes see it at good movie theaters or if you are by a really good pipe organ that hits the real low notes. Um, and so suddenly here we are in the midst of rain, tons of lightning and destruction. And he's giving us directions to Freeman Health System like it's just like a sunny day. So my partner and I raced into town. Um, as we got into town, we crested a horizon where literally... Um, from horizon to horizon, there was intense destruction. And it, 
even to this day, it's hard for me to believe that all of that destruction occurred literally within minutes. I mean, it's just, it's unfathomable. Um, And from horizon to horizon, there were um, various types of bodies, body parts, cattle. Um, There were houses devastated. There were people trying to flag us down for help. And in the distance, we saw St. John's Hospital, which had been just decimated. Where Freeman Health System was, which happens to be just 100 yards away, we pulled into the parking lot there, and it was a weird phenomenon. First of all, all the power in Joplin had gone. All the cell towers were down. The generator power at Freeman had been damaged by the tornado. And so I approached the hospital, and it's funny, I don't think I'm ever really conscious of all the sounds that go on with the hospital, but their absence was stark. And as we approached the hospital, it was, I'm not kidding, dead quiet. Because there was no power in the hospital, it had tripped all the fire alarm strobe lights. So as we approached the hospital, it looked like the Walking Dead episode. All we saw was this quiet, ominous building with lots of strobe lights going off asynchronously throughout the building. Absolutely terrifying. But I felt such relief when I walked into the ER and they had a working ER. Because all of a sudden, now I know what I'm doing, right? This is this is the time that I can actually do something I understand, practice my night job at day. And um, my partner and I checked in, and then I worked in the um, high-acuity treatment area um, for about an hour, an hour and a half, where we saw tons of patients, several who died, um, several who were dying. Um, I remember that we despite everything, despite the fact that the resources were strained to the max, there was good medicine happening, and it was amazing to watch. The the things that were most striking to me were, uh, number one, uh, first of all, I've never seen blood like this. Like, I mean, I've seen horror movies before, but I've never seen blood over so many different surfaces, sometimes on the ceiling and on the walls. And one of the small heroic groups that I never anticipated were part of a disaster response were um, were the custodial staff. And they worked vigilantly to keep the sinks clean, to keep the floors clean. It was amazing. But as we were running around, we had to make decisions about which patients were going to go to surgery and which patients we had to usher into the afterlife sooner. Um, and we had one guy whose eyes were disconjugated. He had a bashed-in skull, but he was still breathing. And you know, we made a decision that he needed to have a peaceful death. Um, I saw things I've never even thought I'd see, like flail chests with bilateral pneumos. That was incredible. Um, I had one lady who got flown in by chopper that they said had a leg amputation, but when she arrived, she had a decent couple legs, both her feet facing forward. As I did my physical exam, my hand got snagged, and my glove got torn on a nail, like a roofing nail, very deep, very long, that was in her leg. And as I did that... I also found that, in fact, her leg was amputated. It had spun around on its stalk and was holding on by, like, the gastroc, and her foot was facing straight forward. It looked normal, but it was clearly not the case. So there were a lot of things going on, and at the time it was just overwhelming. And I remember feeling a great deal of relief because trauma is not my main specialty, right? 
I felt a great deal of relief when uh, one of the nursing supervisors came over and said, we need an internal medicine doctor. I'm like, wow, those are words you just never hear, right? (laughs) You know, they want a neurosurgeon, they want a trauma surgeon, but they would need an internal medicine doctor. So they called me over to to go there. Apparently Freeman was ex- was had unexpectedly received patients from St. John's. And by unexpectedly there was no communication between the two hospitals that had all been destroyed with the uh, with the infrastructure. So patients literally were being rescued from St. John's, brought over to Freeman, and they needed somebody to take care of those patients. So the nursing supervisor interestingly uh grabbed me and took me out from the main ER into the waiting room at first and I thought that's where he was taking me and I've never seen a more frightening sight as a physician because in the waiting room just to give some clarity the tornado in its immediate wake so just minutes after it lifted left over 1500 people injured many of them severely and had killed 154 people it felt as if 1500 of those people were sitting in that waiting room there were people who were bleeding, covered in debris, some vomiting. There was standing room only. And I thought, dear God, please, please don't tell me this is where you need me because I don't know if I can do it. I mean, the irony, of course, in the mass casualty incident is you're better off being severely injured than you are to be a walking wounded. And all I could think is, my God, these poor people. But he did escort me from there to where they had had their discharge lounge, which was actually pretty sizable. And they had just had about maybe 20 patients show up from St. John, or from yeah, from St. John's. Um, these patients had been on the top two floors of St. John's Hospital. Um, I, for one, believe in a higher power, and I've got to admit this was amazing. St. John's was destroyed on a day that they were implementing their new electronic health record. So the census was half of what they would normally have. It occurred on a Sunday afternoon. And um, uh, so it could have been even more colossal. But the patients I took care of were on the top two floors. And they told harrowing tales of, you know, a Coke bottle vending machine flying over their head, um, nurses flying past them in the air, all of the medical stuff flying every which way. And the people at St. John's had done such a phenomenal job of responding so rapidly when everything was going to hell. They saved an incredible number of lives. You know, in the past, we've done other episodes that um, some of you listening may have heard. Uh, we had responders after 9-11. Uh, we've had responders after the Boston Marathon bombing. And time and time again, the, a common theme is this teamwork uh, between people who have never met. Uh, they've uh, never interacted before. They're forced into the situation uh, that they had, in some instances, uh, seconds or less to prepare for. Um, and at that time, it seems like instant instinct takes over. Tell me a little bit about, from your perspective, how incredible it was to see um, that teamwork um, in place amongst a group of strangers. Well, it was very inspiring and humbling. Um, I don't know if the shoe were on the other foot, if a tornado had destroyed our hospital and I didn't know the fate of my family, that I would be working as bullishly and intently and compassionately as those people there. They they served as an inspiration to me. They rooted me in reality. But I think all of us took comfort in actually being able to slip on something that was familiar. This was a totally unfamiliar 
chaotic, destructive event, and to suddenly be able to just be clinicians allowed us to bond in an intense way. And um, at the time, I was living in Jacksonville, Florida, and so they couldn't seem to remember my name was Jason, so they kept saying, hey, Florida. And so I responded to that. And um, when you mentioned 9-11, I remember that when 9-11 occurred, it was my uh, first year as an attending. And um, I remember we watched the towers go down during rounds, and we had we had been on call the night before, and I remember this intense pit of despair because I couldn't do anything. I could just watch the disaster unfold, and I felt completely helpless. And I think where Joplin was a vindication for me was at last. I could give back and feel like I could give something to people. It's really an incredible story to hear. Uh, obviously, I'm sure there's a lot to this that is impossible for you to put into words, the feelings that you had, uh, the things that you saw, smell, felt, etc. How long were you there? And um, sort of take me through uh, the course uh, while you were there and then ultimately leaving Kansas eventually. So um, the hardest part for me that night was I had been up since 5 the previous morning. The tornado hit at around 5.30 p.m., At around 3 in the morning, I started noticing I was losing track of what I was doing. I wasn't as attentive. The adrenaline was fading, and I was exhausted. And I kept pushing myself because I really felt this intense guilt. If I gave up, I could leave. All of these people, this was their reality. And that, that motivated me to keep going several more hours. Um, I happened to run into my chase partner, which was staggering. We ran into each other in this very busy hospital. We've been in totally different areas. And that told me once again that this was my hint, my nudge from above, that it was time to be done. And when we got to our cars, it occurred to me that, um, you know, we weren't going to be able to find a hotel room uh, until we traveled. And actually, it was in Joplin, Missouri. So we had to go, we had to go all the way back to uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma to find... A hotel room and I remember thinking god that means about two hours more driving so I'm already exhausted now I'm going to be driving in the dark and instead we used that time over our ham radios to debrief and to really think about what had happened and to talk about it as we got to our hotel rooms it was so bizarre I was suddenly there in this hotel room just a or a motel room just but it had hot water and there was electricity and it was just like wow what a mind, what a weird thing to happen. I mean, just a few hours ago I was in destruction, and now I'm just in normal peace. Um, We were left with, and we had talked about this, after what we had seen and gone through, should we ever chase again? And ultimately we decided that we should. Um, Part of it was that the storm chasing had led us to Joplin, and we were able to help. And that was karma. Um, and truly, I'm a storm chaser. I, you know, it's just who I am. I didn't cause the damage that happened. So the next two days, we chased in Oklahoma. And the second day, so the 24th of May of 2011, we were once again confronting um, a mass casualty incident, believe it or not. And so we were approaching Norman, Oklahoma, in an area uh, called Chickasha, and a major tornado had ripped through there. And we ended up integrating into the EMS system, and I was given medical command of a three-county area, which was bizarre, with my N of one of experience. 
Um, but we experienced far fewer casualties, like around five or six. And um, it felt great to be able to give back. So that's been my mantra. I don't mind chasing now because if you know God wills it, I'm willing to be there to help. Again, really appreciate you sharing that story. It's um, incredible to hear. Um, have you been back to Joplin, to those hospitals, since, um, since you left uh, back in May 2011? So it's funny. I want to go back. But as it turns out, the storms haven't taken me there. Most of the storms have been in Nebraska and Kansas. But I was very touched uh, about seven months after Joplin. Um, I received a medal from them and the town for the service done. So I have a very strong kinship. I've been in touch with the nurses and doctors that I worked with. I want to go back because um, I want to see how well they've healed. Because if there's one thing I can say about humans, man... We, we keep coming back. We're going we're gonna to rebuild, and that's what they said, and I didn't believe it that night, and they're doing all right. Dr. Persoff, thanks so much again for joining us. Really enjoyed having you on Radio Rounds. Thanks so much. My, my pleasure, truly. Really remarkable. In the midst of all that's sometimes frustrating in the medical profession, if that story doesn't renew your faith in people, I don't know what would. And the lessons that we take from it as well, as far as hospital preparations for disasters, is very, very important. And I think a really important uh, point for us to reflect on. Now, again, Jason Persoff, the storm doctor. What a story. You can read more about him and see his stunning photography collection at stormdoctor.com. We certainly hope to have him back on a future episode on Radio Rounds. Now, in the meantime, remember that you can download podcasts of all of our past episodes. Just search the iTunes store for Radio Rounds or visit www.radiorounds.org. You can also contact our team via email, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. The Twitter handle is at Radio Rounds. All of that information, again, is on radiorounds.org. Production made possible in part by MedPlus Advantage. Sponsored by the American Medical Association. Visit us at medplusadvantage.com. Of course, please remember that the views and opinions expressed on Radio Rounds are not representative of the views and opinions of the partners of Radio Rounds. Thanks so much for joining, everyone. Thanks again to our guest, Dr. Persoff. We hope you have a great week. For our entire staff here at Radio Rounds, I'm Avash Kalra, and one day... I'll be your doctor.